You're listening to the Tech Nest Podcast. You'll hear from PropTech founders, investors, and industry veterans on how they're using tech to change the way we buy, sell, and invest in real estate. This isn't just another podcast about making money in real estate. This is about how we live. In each episode, you'll hear about the market opportunities and trends driving the industry forward. TechNest is proudly produced by Finn Ledger in partnership with HW Media. And now your host, Nate Smoyer. All right, back with another fun-packed episode. And we had a lot of fun in this one. I've got Russell Smith. He's the CRO of a company called Ernest. Ernest.com. He's the Chief Revenue Officer. And we're talking all things Ernest Money security deposit, cash to close, and really the problems that exist around this. Look, if you're not aware, there's a ton of attempted fraud and unfortunately successful fraud in rerouting money when it comes to earnest monies and then also cash to close. And finding a more secure way for consumers to be able to pay those, uh, you know, put up earnest money and to bring the cash to close is not just a, a novel idea. This is important for the future of trust in real estate transactions. Russell and I get into all the details around this. We talk a little bit about the future, what that might look like, how Ernest is gaining adoption, working with brokerages, software providers, and even MLSs. Of course, we talk a little bit about crypto, and at the end, you'll hear a discussion about nachos. How can you resist that? Let's go ahead, jump right in. Hey, Russell, welcome to the show. Hey, Nate, good to be here, man. Uh, it's been a long time in the making. Finally, we got it. We got time on the calendar. We're both very busy uh, and we're making it happen. So let's go ahead and get started the way we always do. Please introduce yourself, let everyone know who you are and what you do. Yeah, thanks, Nate. Well, it's great to be here. I'm glad we could find some time to connect. Um, my name is Russell Smith. I'm the Chief Revenue Officer at Ernest. Uh, we're the leading provider of digital earnest money uh, in the U.S., uh, how money moves in real estate. Um, so that means as, as CRO, I lead on my day-to-day is leading kind of our go-to-market teams. That's partnerships, marketing, success, support, um, all the teams that are, are interacting with our customers and, and growing our business. Love it. And um, before we get into earnest, because I, I, th- I think we're going to have a lot to go in there. I wanted to kick off this a little bit differently because I, I think that you've got um, an interesting career path or you've taken a, a pretty uh, interesting career path in and around prop tech quite a bit. So I'd love to start there. Can you give a little bit of background of your career throughout prop tech and the roles and companies that you've been at prior to Ernest? Yeah, no, for sure. This is I've definitely found a, a bit of a, of a niche in this space. I, I love it. I've spent my my entire nascent career um, in prop tech startups, kind of seed the Series B stage. Um, always in growth roles, uh, you know, started um, at a, a company that provided tenant screening services for property managers and landlords in kind of a sales role. Uh, joined Trulia from there. Um, we're at a, a pretty short-lived uh, role on the kind of the growing their rentals site um, and left when the Zillow acquisition went through. That led me to Real Scout, and, I, and that's I feel like I really cut my teeth at Real Scout. Such a smart team there, um, and I shout wore out a number to of Andrew, kind of sales. Who's, who's yeah, shout out to Andrew, previous guest yep. on Tech Nest. That's right, Arthur, uh, Michael. They they have one of the most solid, smart cores leading that company. I I'd, uh, I'd, I'd bet on them versus just about anybody, to be honest with you. But uh, I, I wore I really cut my teeth on the sales side there. Eventually moved into a product role. Um, but you know, that's, there's so many things we learned there around, you know, how to, how to get products into real estate agents hands, uh, via, you know, the direct sale via the brokerage sale and the more enterprise route or via these kind of like association MLS partnerships. There's kind of those different levels of distribution. Um, and we tried a lot of stuff. We were definitely kind of scientists about growth. Um, but I really, I felt like I really cut my teeth there. And to your point about Andrew, I feel like I really learned how to work hard. Like that is the hardest working guy in showbiz. Uh, and I, I learned firsthand there. Um, left and joined a company called House Canary, um, where I also joined in a product marketing role, moved into a partnerships role, kind of biz dev, then eventually kind of more of a strategy and ops. But again, just kind of 
you know, get in where you fit in and, uh, and, and kind of went to wherever I was, I was most needed. Uh, and then I left House Canary to join Ernest about 18 months ago. So yeah, kind of a wide variety, a lot of different corners of the general real estate prop tech market, but always trying to grow the businesses, figure out a way to find, you know, product market fit and, and, and grow, grow the business. I love how you described you kind of found a, a niche for yourself in this business because I think from the outside, people think of prop tech oftentimes as like this little industry. And I often feel like prop tech is just hardly descriptive at all because, you know, I see it as just so many different directions of, you know, and then of course everyone wants to try and draw a line as to what is and isn't prop tech. And I'm not interested in that part, but you know, that, you know, I think good on you. I mean, like getting in and, you know, actually doing the hard selling and then even going the product route that obviously you had to learn like a ton of skills of uncovering true customer desires versus say like, um, kind of like what we talked about pre-show of all the startups who just, they identify the real estate agent as who they want as a customer and they built the thing they think the real estate agent wants, but don't realize how it doesn't fit. Like what are some of the things that you learned across those companies that you think may be a unique characteristic that helps you take prop techs and, and really gain traction? No, it's a great question, Nate. I think, um, you know, and, and this is something beyond prop tech, anything. I think it's just even the real estate agent, especially the real estate agent who is really doing business, right? Not all real estate agents are created equal. Um, they are incredibly busy. They don't even have enough time to do their their core functions. They're always thinking about ways to kind of leverage themselves even further. And taking sales calls is not always the best way to create that leverage. Um, yep. And then and, and no one is sold to more. Like no one's budgets are, are being come after more like real estate agents. And so I think it's a core principle. I mean, in, in, in even in marketing, right, it's knowing your audience. I think when you're building a product, when you're bringing it to market, you just really have to know your customer really have to focus on their pain points, not just, you know, one of my favorite kind of idioms around kind of bringing a product to market is it has to be a painkiller, not a vitamin. Right. And, and that I think is something just too often you see in, in whether it's the product leader or the sales leader, whoever it is like too often, they are not willing to, they, they have the blinders on, right. They come in with preconceived notions and anything that doesn't fit that hypothesis it's really easy to to clear out on the side. And I think that the smartest product leaders I've ever worked with are some of the least opinionated people I've ever met. You know, they, they are, as my mom says, God gave you two ears and one mouth, use them accordingly. <laughs> and those, you know, they're three ears and half a mouth, right? Like it is all about, you know, they're not, they're not when, when, when they're getting their hypothesis, like said back to them, they're not patting themselves on the back. They're thinking about their next, question to ask to dive deeper on it or or really you know really wanted to make sure what they're hearing is is true and that they truly understand it and going beyond the surface level and i think i think that's just so critical and for myself i think most people's career tracks are very like i guess i'd say like more horizontal in the sense of versus mine being very vertical i've worn a lot of different hats all in this same sector versus a lot of people they're kind of industry agnostic. It's like, well, I'm going to start as like a marketing rep and then I become a marketing lead and then a marketing manager and director and VP. But it's, you know, they're moving throughout industries. And for me, and I, I mean, as long as I can imagine this will be the case for me, it's like, I'm much more vertical to this business because there is so much to learn. There's so many people to meet. Um, and I would, I'd leave a lot of value behind and a lot of, you know, intrinsic knowledge if I were to move on to another industry. So that's, but a lot of these things are industry agnostic, right? Knowing your customer, knowing your audience, listening, understanding a pain versus a, you know, a need versus a want, et cetera. I think it's so important. The takeaway I have here is to look for people when hiring. And I think it's obvious, but looking for people who come from the industry, uh, whether they've been selling, whether they've been in product, whether they've been in customer success, there's just so much of that knowledge that translates and actually can take a product to the next level and really is good, uh, you know, versus starting at the, the base for your industry and just because you have skills like you, you still have a lot to catch up on on the industry side certainly a balance there but i think there, there's probably a lesson in there on 
you know, how to look for, you know, top talent. I want to shift a little bit. Curiosity, right? Right, Nate? Like, like oh, to that point, yeah. like, you want people who are curious. Like, if they're, if they're not asking questions in an interview about your role, their role or the company, mm-hmm. they're not going to be asking questions of their customers. They're not going to be asking questions, like, testing right. these assumptions. And, and so that curiosity, I think, is always one, one little anecdote I'll share on that. I, I always remember is at one point, I, I wouldn't even say when or, or who, but I was, I was interviewing someone, uh, for a, a lead, like a head of product role at a company. And this person was a, like a senior product person at Yelp. And I asked them, like Netflix had just come out with the thumbs, they'd gotten rid of the five-star rating metric and they'd gone with just thumbs up, thumbs down. And I asked the guy, I said, what, what do you think, Yelp is five stars, what do you think is the best rating mechanism to truly give signal to set out, like to separate the good from the bad? Is it five stars, 10 stars, thumbs up, thumbs down? And his answer was, man, you know what? I've never even thought of that before. I just thought, how can you not think about that? It's the entire purpose of your business <laughs> is to like be able to use noise and create signal mm. of good versus bad. Like that is the entire purpose yeah. of this app. Other than making money from selling ads to like small business owners. But you know what I mean? Like that's, that's the point. So to never think about that. That's right away. I was like, this might be someone who's really smart. He might be able to show me metrics about how he grew revenue or released product, but mm. there, that curiosity didn't exist. And you need yeah. people who have that curiosity. Wow. Um, <laughs> I want to shift a little bit away from, I don't even know where to go with that one. Sure. Yeah, but you, you also serve <laughs> as a, a NAR reach mentor. Mm-hmm. That's right. And so what does that look like? And what are some of the companies uh, or the types of companies that you're, you're working with? Obviously that's giving you a lot of unique um, vantage perspectives for for the industry where things are moving yeah well no it's a great question i love being a reach mentor i think this will be my fourth or fifth year doing it i've actually i I hold the title for i've I've worked for the most reach companies real scout house canary and Ernest are all reach companies so i'm i'm working on my third reach company which is what really thank you yeah thank you um you know and and that's what really uh introduced me to the program introduced me to the folks over there um, but it's, it's a wonderful team. The reach team is. And for me, what I love about it is, you know, it's this great trade of, I get to provide, I get to meet these founding teams and understand their products and be able to provide them with, you know, feedback and answer questions. And, you know, that's, you got to give, give into the world to, to get. And, uh, and that always makes me feel good being able to kind of provide these learnings to these folks that they obviously really value. And, and for me also, it, it's a great way to, stay up to date on kind of what's coming in the industry, what's being worked on. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's just energizing. It's just so energizing as a way to, as someone who maybe some, maybe someday I'll get to have some money to angel invest or something, but it's just so energizing to talk to people who are building a business who, you know, the, the founding teams and stuff. It just, it gets me excited. It, it energizes me even in my own life. Totally. Yeah, I, I, right there with you. I actually echo a lot of the same. I, I have the opportunity to serve as a Metaprop mentor. And so it, and it feels exactly the same way. Uh, you know, anytime we go over our, our time, I'm like, no, this is energizing to me. This is invigorating. Yeah. Like, you think you're, I'm helping you. You know, no, this is, this way. And it's not always the case. Serve. In fact, if anyone's listening sure. who's going to go into one of those programs, my one piece of advice is, the, 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 the worst ones I have, I bet you could echo this, Nate, is right away where they're like, hey, I looked like we just introduced ourselves and right away they're like, can you introduce me to so-and-so? Can you make this introduction? Right. It's like, well, yeah, but, you know, can, let's walk through, you know, take me to dinner first, you know, like, like get me excited about what you're building. <laughs> like, get, like, you know what I mean? Like, that's that's what's going to make me want to make connections here, Sure. Yeah. you know, and, and, and so I think that's. Really, and, and obviously, I mean, selling your story, telling the story of the business you're building and the problems you're solving, that is always what's going to get people to want to help you, whether it's a mentor who can make introductions for you, a customer to buy your product. You know, tell me the story of, of the problems that you're solving. Let's jump into it. Let's talk a little more about Ernest. And uh, I want to first, let's set the stage, right? Because I know we're going to be talking around the transaction of, of residential properties here. So set the stage here of all the people who are involved in closing a residential real estate deal. Oh man, that is a that is a stage. You, you can leave one or two out if you need to, but let's set the no, stage here because no. well, I think this is so, going to really highlight the problems. Well, there's so there's so many mechanics there, right? I mean, even what I worked on at House Canary as far as 
the issue of, I mean, the critical role today, the way things are set up that the appraiser plays, regardless even of, you know, how how effective they are in, in, in the aggregate and creating, you know, accurate estimates of value. Um, but the fact that they're just going away at a, you know, they're the oil in this engine, right? You know, a loan can't yep. be originated because it can't be securitized and traded on the second market unless it has an appraisal attached to it. And in tons of markets, right. appraisers are drying up. And like, how do you fix that, yep. right? And you've got to get all these people to agree that there's a new currency that's being traded. So, I mean, there's so many aspects of that within the transaction. From from the earnest perspective, really the problem we're solving is generally speaking, now we're, we're moving more into all of how money moves in real estate, all these payment occasions, commission disbursements, and you know, eventually the cash to close when payment technology gets there. But today, really the problem we're solving in mass is the earnest money deposit. And this is something it works a little different across a lot of markets. But at the end of the day, it's essentially a, a, a part of every transaction, residential yep. real estate in the country. The moment the contract is signed, some portion of the of the cost is due in earnest money to escrow, yep. right? Some states even have yep. these little due diligence payments that go straight from buyer to seller. There's all sorts of crazy stuff out there, Nate. But the problem, the, yep. the, the problem that is always there is this, earnest money to escrow. Sometimes escrow is held at the brokerage. Sometimes it's an escrow company. Sometimes it's a title attorney. But in all of those cases, the home buyer needs to get that there. And in, in most instances, it is a home buyer having to write a paper check or go get a certified check, get it yeah. to their real estate agent. The real estate agent has to drive it across town, usually makes a photocopy of it, which, you know, check. We always talk about wire fraud, which is unbelievably rampant. I mean, we can even talk about some of the statistics there. Check fraud's even oh, bigger yeah. than wire fraud, right? Um, I don't know that. Um, so, so wire you're, you're, fraud. You're looking at someone who doesn't have a checkbook. <laughs> yeah, you, you, and, you and all of us millennials. Yeah. So wire fraud, just so you know, the American Land Title Association just came out with their wire fraud study. One in three real estate transactions in 2020 had a noted wire fraud attempt occur, and 8% of those one in three resulted in funds being wired to the wrong account, okay? Like, this is not some, like, 0.01%. Like, 8% this of one in three. Crazy. crazy, Nate. Crazy. Like, I... I Wait, hold know. on. I, I'm not good at math here, but I'm going to attempt to do some math. So if we had 6 million transactions last year, mm -hmm. right... I think that I think that was the number that I yeah that's that's an average around. yeah about the average so and, and uh, so one third of that is one point nine eight and you're saying eight percent of these mm -hmm. that's what they were, that's so, what I'm so, saying that's what Alta said yep so so you're talking about one hundred fifty thousand transactions had either some level of attempt or successful attempt in wire fraud. And they said twenty only twenty nine percent of those were able to be fully um, uh, collected, like recovered. They, they recovered. Exactly right. Excuse like, me. Yes, like recovered. someone fi someone figured out, hey, the wire hasn't been here. It's been four hours, and they knew right away that the first step is contact FBI. That's right. And check fraud in this country makes up sixty percent of all fraud on U.S. bank accounts. So whatever that number is. Wow. For wire fraud, check fraud is even bigger. And yet, back to kind of this process we're solving, the average real estate agent with a paper check for earnest money is, you know, there's a lot of sensitive information on a paper check, right? Name, address, account routing details. Sure. They're making yeah. photocopies. They're hand, like, it, they're handing them around like Tic Tacs and not like these these really, you know, uh, serious documents with, with sensitive information and PII. And this I is- I felt weird picking up a check and then driving around with someone else's check in, in my car and then going and taking it. Now, fortunately I had a back office team, so like I could hand it to them and I knew it would be taken care of properly, but I, I never liked, you know, as an agent, I hated that and as a consumer, you know- Well, and that's, and, and Nate, because house, of that, right? Because I hated that all it there. There's a ton of liability. All it takes then, you know, two weeks from now, I get, I, I, you know, identity fraud. And what am I going to think? I'm going to think it was your fault for driving around, which is why a lot of brokerages, a lot of markets now, they tell their agents, don't even touch the check. We don't even touch checks. At the end of the day, how are you providing me great service? If you're just like, you got to go this whole thing, you got to go deal with this and figure out. That's when I bought my house. Yeah. That's what happened with my agent. He's like, yep. sorry, yep. man, I, you got to figure it out. This is between you and the title company. It's just like, 
I, you're my guy. What, you know, I right. thought you can't even help me here. So yeah. it's, it's a real problem. And that's the problem Ernest is solving in mass. We actually just last month did our hundred thousandth successful Ernest money deposit. Uh, we've wow. had zero instances Congrats. of fraud. Thank you. Yeah. It was a big number. It's a big, this isn't like a, just like a concept on a whiteboard. Like we're, we're really bringing this bad boy to market. So, uh, so talk best, to me how it works, yeah. like like practically, like how does yeah. it how does it actually work? Um, and then, of course, obviously, we'll get into some of the nuances of how you're getting it to market. Totally. No, I'd love to talk about that. So, the central concept is Ernest has a closed network of escrow holders. We take them through a multi point kind of verification. If you want to be an escrow holder, join the Ernest network. We confirm you're a legitimate company. We onboard your accounts. Uh, it's free for escrow holders to join and use Ernest. But we, we verify them and bring them on. So that's why you can only use Ernest to send money to verified escrow holders on our network. That's how we're able to prevent fraud, right? So what happens is step one is, as the real estate agent, either via an integration we have in a system like Dotloop or Zipforms or Keller Williams Command, uh, an agent generates the request for the home buyer to pay their Ernest money. So I go in and say, I'm your agent, Nate. I go in and say, uh, Nate's name and email needs to pay $3,000 in Ernest money here's the property address and it's, you know, first American, you know, downtown Chicago. And, and that generates a request that sends off to you, the home buyer to complete. You receive in your email, you go in, you verify your identity, and then we've got an integration with Plaid. So you select one of 16,000 banks that you bank with. You just use your online, your online banking details to sign in and you authorize the transaction. So 80% of home buyers complete the entire process in under three minutes. So in the time it would take for them to even find their checkbook, they've paid their earnest money. The agent, the buyer, the escrow company all get receipts via email and it's and it's done. So that that's really the the kind of the three-step process. Agent requests, buyer pays, escrow receives. That's that's really the three-step process. All right, I want to shift gears here a little bit. Uh, Russell, I know that you guys at Ernest have been integrating with other platforms as a way of really picking up market share and, and distribution. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, how that's going, who you're integrated with, and how much is this contributing to the current growth at Ernest? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's it's a huge part of our strategy overall. I mean, both from a growth side, but also, a, you know, meeting our users where they are. I mean, collecting Ernest money and keeping everyone in the loop is obviously a core aspect of the transaction. And you know, we, we, we don't, anytime we can remove an additional tool from a real estate agent stack and, and meet them where they already are and where they are already managing the transaction, it's, it's a big win for us. So, you know, we've got our integrations inside of Keller Williams Command today, um, Dotloop, uh, Zipforms from Lone Wolf. We're actually launching this week Form Simplicity, which, uh, you know, all of these are tools that, you know, tens of thousands of agents are using, if not hundreds of thousands of agents are using to manage transactions every day. Um, we're also moving into, in the idea of moving to where the agent is, we're also starting to integrate with MLSs as well. So uh, at the beginning of this month, we launched an integration with Real MLS in Jacksonville, Florida um, to be right there in the MLS portal. You know, an agent can go in and when their buyer is interested in a listing or when they are uh, you know, moving the listing agents, moving into pending, they can collect the earnest money right there. So it's a huge part of our strategy to meet the, with the agents where they are and, you know, somewhat try to be like the Apple pay for earnest money. Um, but also, you know, for our growth, obviously it's, it's, a, it's a huge way for us to get in front of more users very rapidly. It makes a ton of sense. Uh, obviously, you know, if, if, you, if the agent or the customer has to go and get the app and then bring it in or they have to still work out of the normal flow, it, it still doesn't reduce friction, which, you know, even though this may increase security or can actually make things more, uh, you know, streamlined, if, if that friction is there, it's, it, it's just for some people, it's just going to be too much for them to bother. But now being baked into a lot of tools, I mean, being with Lone Wolf, they bought half the market last year of of CRM, you know, tools out there. So that I mean, obviously, like that in of itself is is incredible amounts of exposure and getting right in front of other agents. Yeah, I mean, they obviously have a massive platform that they're continuing to build on top of, buy on top of. Um, they've been a great partner of ours. They obviously have a ton of reach in the industry. They understand 
their users in a, in a way that not every platform does. And that's been really helpful also for thinking through integrations. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're, we're very stoked to be partnered with them. You know, to your point though, around reducing friction, uh, I think the biggest part is also making sure the receipt of earnest money is getting back in for compliance and these tools, et cetera. But even for our, our native app and, and today still the majority of agents who, who request earnest money through earnest use our, our native app. Uh, on average, it takes an agent only 90 seconds to, to do their part. And then the buyer, when the buyer needs to actually pay earnest money through earnest, 80% of buyers complete the entire process end to end in under three minutes. So it's it's still a very fast process. And I think it's it's worth noting even still like versus how probably 95% of agents, this is still a, you know, we're in the early stages here, probably 95% of agents are still doing it the old fashioned way, which are the, you know, the buyer needs to get a paper check or a certified check. They need to get it to their agent or their escrow officer. So you know, the integration is just, it, it makes it even that much more seamless right there inside of managing the transaction. Um, and it, like I said, it gives earnest visibility as well. We're able to lean on, you know, these large customer bases that our partners already have. Yeah. Yeah. It makes, makes a ton of sense. I don't think we've gotten into exactly, you know, who, if we kind of, um, you know, obviously you have the partnerships, but you know, who really is the buyer, right? So if we think of, you know, product, you, you're selling to someone, so how, how does that work? Like if it's in the agent tools, that's great. But does the, does the consumer have to bring it up? Does the agent have to propose it? How does all that work? Yeah, no, it's a great question. So we don't go directly to buyers, right? We're, we're B2B to C in the sense of we bring on escrow holders and agents and, and really building what we're doing through a, a closed network of escrow holders. There's a bit of supply and demand, right? Mm-hmm. We need to continue to grow our escrow holder network, that's supply, so that agents on the demand side can actually use it. Uh, an agent can't create a request for their client center this money to an escrow holder that's not in our network. So we have to kind of work both mm-hmm. sides of the marketplace uh, where we've seen the most success thus far, just because it's, you know, essentially the lowest hanging fruit there is in markets where brokerages hold earnest money, because in that case, supply and demand are both under the same oh. roof. Um, so what I know, are some of those markets? I'm not, I'm actually not familiar. Well, with one of your former markets, Chicago, we work with a number of the large brokerages in Chicago, Compass, App Properties, um, a few Remaxes out there, a few Keller Williams market centers out there. So we've, we've got a pretty strong market share in, in Chicago for one. Um, and to that point, you know, when we brought on App Properties and we, you know, onboarded all of their escrow accounts, we now know that, you know, a hundred percent of their agents can use earnest a hundred percent of the time. Versus in a title held market where we bring on, you know, a first American, for example, it's a little harder for us to draw that straight line on the activation side of things to, okay, who are the next hundred agents who are going to be able to use this? So it does become in those title held markets where supply and demand are decoupled. um, It does become a little bit more of a a marketplace dynamic, um, which is obviously a little bit more challenging, but it's also super exciting and building those types of marketplace businesses have you know, incredible payoffs in the long run and, and you're creating tremendous value for your users. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know, I mean, I never worked as an agent in Chicago. Uh, I retired. I, I like to believe I was doing the industry a favor by working as a real estate agent. I think, uh, I can't remember which episode. I mean, I think, um, you know, my, my last discussion with Austin Allison from Picasso, I think I said on behalf of uh, of everyone that uh, thinks all real estate agents are bad, I'm sorry. It's my fault. Um, <laughs> I apologize, and so and I'll just reiterate that again. Um, <laughs> but maybe not so much. It's too funny. So, so, so I'm interested to hear. Uh, obviously, like this is a little bit of a change of pattern in in what some agents have been doing. I mean. Real estate agents, especially those who have a thriving business, tend to have been in this business for some time. You mm-hmm. know, it's not uncommon to find someone who's been in this business 10, 15 years. Oh, yeah. What has been some of the feedback uh, that is both receptive and also what's been the pushback to adopting earnest? That's a great question. So uh, they're all great questions. Uh, so, you know, I think for what we do, the more business an agent does, frankly, the more of a need they see for our product. So mm-hmm. agents who've been around a long time, that just means that they're even more tired of chasing checks around town. Um, you know, maybe there's for the younger agents who haven't felt that pain point as long, that's made up for with, you know, their expectation being more like digital native 
for you know expecting a a more streamlined way for this. They might not have a checkbook themselves. Why would they expect their home buyers to have one either? So, you know, we mm-hmm. really I, I actually think think the agent is generally speaking um, the role or the persona that's most most um, you know willing to use earnest or really is driving that demand. I think typically speaking, where we have to do a little bit more educating and selling is on the escrow holder side, whether that, again, that's internal um, or at a brokerage that holds earnest money or at the title company, just because, you know, they have a lot more compliance things to think about around, you know, is this good funds? How does this work with our current operations? You know, we've got these different kind of channels to accept a paper check, to accept a wire. It almost like, feels like the same resistance to digital signatures 10 years ago. Exactly right. Yep. Or Ron or any of these things. It's, it's right in that same bucket, Nate. Yeah, where we don't know if we can do it this way. Is this legal? Does this break any rules? And totally. so then some clarity. How do you convince that? So, I mean, because like if I put myself in the title agent's shoes, right? So like I sold mm-hmm. real estate in Washington State. In our county, at least, you went to a title and escrow company and said, uh, okay, this is where we'll pull title from. This is where you'll get your you know, your title insurance. This is where the escrow account will be. If I'm, if I'm the agent on, on the title and escrow side, I'm saying, like, I don't know the rules on this. I do know the rules over here with this standard giant stack of things <laughs> you know, to go through. So we're just going to default here. Like, how do you overcome that objection? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, listen, you're not going to win every battle, um, but for the most part, um, they understand the convenience. I think a big part of it is, especially in the world of RESPA and in California, we even have additional kind of rules and regulations that, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, a title agent can't even buy a real estate agent a cup of coffee. Um, Right. They're always looking for compliant ways to attract and retain their agent partners, right? And so when a real estate agent or a brokerage raises their hand and says, hey, we really want to be using this, you know, it, it is definitely a push. So from our app, when an agent is creating a request or just from our landing pages, an agent can go in and invite their escrow holder. So if there's an escrow holder that's not in our network, in fact, I'd say the majority of, of the escrow holders we bring on on a daily basis are invited by agents and brokers. So they're telling their title partner, um, saying, hey, we really want to use this and we want you on board. And for the escrow holder, it's free to join Earnest. It's free to use Earnest. Um, yeah. It's completely free for them. So they usually have some questions around, okay, you know, I'm, the agents who we want to work with even more are saying they want to use this, but we need to make sure it's good funds. We need to know how are we going to reconcile for this. And again, we're just used to fielding those questions all day long. We're not going to win them all, but it's usually a pretty strong value proposition when the people that they're trying to win more business from are saying, you know, this is how you're going to get my business. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I love it. I mean, obviously, yeah, you can't win all the battles. But, you know, when you've already now demonstrated this in many markets, you have the technology partners. And, of course, winning an MLS as a partner probably goes a pretty long way because, obviously, if it's baked into the MLS and you're a local title company, you really have two choices at that point. You know, do I want to be in this business for the long haul or am I willing to just, you know, say <laughs> – to, to, to risk it and say, hey, the, you know, nothing's going to change and we'll just do business as usual. You're, you're totally right, Nate. And I think that's part of that strategy is really, you know, when you're building a, again, earnest at its core is somewhat of a marketplace business on the earnest money side. Yeah. What the big unlocks there to grow is, are figuring out ways in which demand begets supply and supply begets demand. So something like an MLS level partnership is the type of demand creating supply by agents then inviting their escrow holders by also giving our partnerships team that much more ammo to go into a local title company and saying, hey, listen, here are the other title companies we have on board. All 11,000, you know, real MLS members here in Jacksonville are going to see this in two weeks. And they're going to click in and they're not going to see your title company. So let's get you on board. It takes us 10 minutes. It's completely free. You know, yep. it, so it, it is that much more wind. I mean, as I'm saying it out loud, I'm thinking, why don't we win them all? But uh, it is, uh, but it, it does absolutely help with, and then, you know, de- supply beginning demand. That's really more of our activation strategy. We have an awesome success team that, you know, is actually working with these title partners, providing them co-branded marketing materials, working with them around sending out emails, creating landing pages, et cetera, 
so that they can get the word out to the agents who want to direct them earnest money. It almost makes me think a little bit back to previous episode. We had Brian Zitten from Regora talking through appraisal software and uh, appraisal ordering software. And, you know, it was it, the appraisal software is free to appraisers. So very easy to onboard them, but it's only a cost to the lender to then be able to use that software to then order and manage and receive in, you know, because it dramatically speeds up the appraisal process and makes the appraiser better and more organized, then it's a no brainer for the lender. Otherwise you risk being able to compete in today's market. It requires that added edge and that added level that ultimately that level of service gets passed to the consumer. It, it all makes its way back. And so winning that repeat business it just shows, like, I think we're seeing this more and more in prop tech, you know, being embedded integration, you know, seamless communications, while it's messy on the back end of companies, does the end result look much better and feel much greater to the consumer? I think so. I think the only thing different, Nate, and I, I actually have all sorts of hot takes on the appraiser industry just from my time at House Canary and, and things that could be improved, things that are done very well. I think... The difference here is there are these layers far beyond RESPA on the appraiser side where the agent doesn't get to pick who the appraiser they work with is, nor does the lender, right? There's the AMC that's sitting in the middle of that, sure. which actually there's reasons for that, right? To ensure that, you know, this is, they're not getting the friend, friend hookup on putting the number in the right place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it right. also, I think in the sense we were talking about here is it, 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 it takes away some motivation to you know, improve on the current process. Um, because, you know, right. it's not like an, if I, as an appraiser, if I go out and use a better tool that makes the whole thing that much better, it doesn't mean that I'm going to get hired for more jobs. It doesn't necessarily mean that I can command a higher price, et cetera. And I think that is, a, so there's a lot of similarities there. I think the difference here is it is a way for a title company to stand out amongst their competitors mm. in an industry that is like, I don't, I don't mean to, you know, demean it, but it, you know, it is a little bit more similar to brokerage. I think from a consumer standpoint, it, it can be seen as a bit ubiquitous, right? About, Hey, if I go to title mm -hmm. company A or title company B, am I really getting something entirely different? And this is a way for them to really stand out and showing that they are listening to their agents, adopting new technology, making it, yeah. focusing on the client experience. Yeah, yeah. The only difference I've ever seen at going to a title company, and then we'll keep on moving here, is one that doubled my seller's concessions once at that I happened to catch an hour before closing. So, <laughs> uh, and then their response to me was just the worst thing I'd ever heard in my life, which was, uh, it was a thank you for catching that. That is our mistake. So that was good. And they said, we're so glad you read the docs no one ever reads them. How are you supposed to read them? It's like a hundred pages. <laughs> uh, it's like, like, what do you mean no one reads this stuff? And then I realized as I uh, started doing more deals um, that it was very time consuming. They only gave you like two hours notice. Uh, and I was like, well, this seems dangerous. And that's a topic for a whole nother <laughs> yeah. day and a whole nother story um, that I am not qualified to speak on. So, yeah. you know, we're going to keep yeah. moving here. We'll get into a little bit more of like, so you talked about the one MLS uh -huh. that you're in. Um, I am curious if you're seeing from agents, is there any difference between market to market? Uh, and that can be ge geography, maybe luxury versus, you know, middle market, residential or affordable. Or are you seeing adoption really across all asset types and geographies? You know, I, I think so, Nate, honestly. I think, um, you know, in some of the areas where, again, it takes a little bit more education, I was just having a conversation with a um, brokerage exec in Southern California. And Southern California, unlike Northern California, title and escrow are separate businesses, right? So you work with a title company and you work with an escrow company. And the first thing when we were bringing in earnest to them was they were saying, hey, you know, this actually doesn't really fit for our market. Agents aren't supposed to touch the earnest money here at all. They work directly with escrow. And it's like, no, that that is actually exactly how this works. The agent doesn't ever need to touch a check. They're doing exactly what they would just via our app where they're putting in who the buyer's name is, putting in the escrow company the money needs to go to. And, you know, they're, they're putting in the amount of money that needs to be paid. Like that's, that's just the same thing as telling, texting my buyer and saying, 
you need to pay three thousand dollars to you know first you know first american downtown long beach um it's it's the same thing so it's some of it is actually making them see how it fits it's not really a totally new process it's a better way to do their current process i think some of the areas where again i don't i don't think we're seeing some you know disproportionate adoption but areas where we definitely hear the best feedback is especially in like second home markets where you know it's not just as easy for the buyer to deliver their paper check by you know getting in their car and driving 5 minutes so by th- those are areas where it's just that much more seamless and straightforward i'd say um but no not not disproportionate adoption i think it's something even if you are going to see your buyer later that day i mean it's just something for the average agent um you know some, something else i've been blown away just through some of our basic like surveying and stuff our satisfaction is just as high with older buyers and older payers as it is with younger i mean you know just because someone might be experiencing a plaid integration for the first time or what have you we just even to my own surprise we just haven't seen you know better adoption based off of are you a millennial or a or a boomer or anything like that it's it's pretty straight down the line i think when you make something that just makes the whole process more efficient everyone can see it. that i mean that's that's awesome and especially when you start seeing like consistency across different market segments um as a startup you start asking yourself have we really hit market fit do we have this is this, is this? and and i mean your customers are telling you they're literally voting mm-hmm. that hey this is this is something we want and what an encouraging sign. Absolutely. Most startups, you know, will have to go through some levels of experimentation to really find that market fit, uh, which comes with assumptions. And sometimes some of the assumptions are proven to be wrong. Have you guys gone down the path of you had some thoughts or did some experiments that didn't quite work out? If so, can you share an example of one of those? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, Ernest is a startup, so we're constantly, you know, getting some things right and some things wrong because we're doing a lot of things. I mean, part of it was just even on this own journey to solve how this works with Ernest Money, how the technology works. I mean, I could tell you Ernest was founded in 2017. We've done more transactions in the last three months than we did in the first three years, right? Just because it takes a while, not even, you know, and that, that was actually before I even joined the company, but, you know, obviously there's going to be experimentation. There's building things from, from scratch. There's listening to users. I think what benefited Ernest a lot was, you know, our founders were real estate professionals, both a long-term real estate agent and some title attorneys who knew this pain, knew the industry, knew the good funds concern. Um, so they, they were folks from the inside who knew how it needed to work. Um, but you know, we're constantly testing right now, you know, we're, we're currently expanding outside of earnest money. We're working with, we have lenders who are using our tools to collect appraisal fees and first month's mortgage payments. We're working with, um, home builders who collect reservation deposits and selection payments and design center payments. We're working with, um, you know, t- brokerages who are using us to collect agent fees on a monthly basis from their agents and pay them their commissions. So we are expanding now beyond our kind of eponymous product of earnest money. Um, and along that way, you know, it's a lot of trial and error. I think, I think the area, and I know we talked about this earlier, but you know, a big part of that is just like really having a, you know, a, a, a big curiosity. You know, we talked about that being like a, a need for a great product person is just mm-hmm. um, yeah. not just trying to like have a hypothesis that you're just, you know, turning everything off to try and go out there and validate. So I think, I think that's been really beneficial is having a team that can really come in with no egos, um, no pre overly preconceived notions and, 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 and test us, create assumptions, test them, and just kind of have that like intellectual honesty with ourselves around, you know, the problems we're trying to solve and staying really, you know, just like we did with earnest money. I think it's really important that we stay, use case specific, like not just release a feature because we heard from a customer they want it or, you know, but, but to be thinking like, what is the use case here that we're really solving yeah. for? What are the pain points? What are the current solutions look like? How can we improve upon that? And I think, I think if you kind of have a solid approach there, you'll be fine. But obviously, you know, things, certain things have not, have not worked the way we thought along the way. And we're still, we're still, there's still tons of trial and error every, every yeah, day. I know that one. <laughs> I mean, even, even on the go-to-market side, right? I mean, you know, one thing I, I actually hear this one come up a lot is like, you know, uh, and, and I can say even in the past, like things we've tested, like uh, referral 
referred referral deals. Like, hey, you're an agent using this tool. Uh, invite another agent. We'll pay you twenty dollars. And what I learned, it at- always looks so good on paper. <laughs> this is going to work out really well, right? One out of four agents is going to yeah. refer someone, and if we just apply a little bit of payments behind that or something, like that's right. We're just we're our growth is going to take off. Our CAC is going to plummet. Like here we go. That's right. Every referral program I've ever seen, I've loved until I tried it. <laughs> well, especially with agents. I mean, actually, the, the the next funniest part about that was I remember we ran at Real Scout, we ran an NPS campaign. And, you know, as an NPS score, it asks, for Net Promoter Score, it asks, you know, how likely would you to be to recommend this to a colleague? And we it right. came back much lower than we anticipated. We started reading some of the comments, and people were answering it as the question was posed. And they're like, I love Real Scout but I wouldn't recommend it to my colleagues. Like this is my secret weapon and agents compete more with the the agents at their own brokerage than they do with agents at other brokerages often. And so it was just like a, it was a funny, fascinating. Yes. We kind of had to like change the way we asked the question because the whole idea of an NPS really breaks when your colleagues are your competitors. Right. So, so the same thing goes to the referral program. Like, it, it can be hard when the more your customers who love you the most are the least likely to, you know, uh, promote you uh, because they want to keep it their little secret. Uh, at least, at least, yeah, it, you know, yeah. some of it. Sometimes you're going to have the forward-looking folks who say, "Listen, like this is a startup. If they're going to stick around and I get to continue to use their product at a fair price, they need to keep growing. So I'm going to keep telling the world about it." But you know, I understand both sides of it. But yeah, no, some funny, some funny insights along the way. And like I said, I think we've had just as much trial and error on on the go-to-market side over the years we have on the product side but you know if you never if you don't test you'll never find out yeah 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 i want to we're gonna have to jump down here uh i've got i got two more questions i want to ask before we get into the bottom of the show um and i want to talk about overall market opportunity Mm -hmm. you know potentially for investors who are listening to this or future partners like for you guys i don't know if you've summarized it in like terms of revenue or transactions like how big is this problem really what's this look like well you know on the earnest money side earnest money is essentially a part of every transaction real estate transaction in in the country right so just the u.s alone you're looking at six to seven million earnest money deposits a year um, we charge our standard rate is 15 dollars per transaction paid by the home buyer some 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 escrow holders decide to cover the fee themselves, but for the most part, it's fifteen dollars paid by the home buyer. Uh, you know, from there, and, and honestly, some of this came from our our customers' feedback was, "Man, when are you going to bring this same simplicity and ease of use and everything to how we pay our agents' commissions, how we collect fees from them, etc." So, I think when you think about that earnest money transaction, it's a payment transaction within the real estate transaction, but within that real estate transaction, there are many many more transactions that are occurring. Um, There's the cash to close, which we are super, super excited about forthcoming payment technology will will allow us to solve for that because that's where the fraud really exists in our space. That's the big, scary one-time fee that is a a plague on our industry. And we want to resolve that. Uh, But even beyond that, the more B2B payments, there's the commission disbursements from escrow to the brokerage, from from escrow to the agent, from the brokerage to the agent. There's disbursements to municipalities and, you know, all the like that end up turning into these escheatment and things. There's, there's buyer refunds, you know, the miscalculation of $1.50 at closing that now has to be returned to the buyer. And until that buyer cashes that check, it is a huge headache for title and escrow companies. So there's just all sorts of those other payments, sub transactions to the real estate transaction that need more transparency, security ease of use. Uh, so longer term, you know, I think our estimates are essentially for every real estate transaction, there's about, you know, an average about 20 to 30 transactions that are taking place um, that we can help resolve and, and, and you know, yeah, bring, bring clarity and, and technology to. And speaking of, of technology, certainly we, we can avoid when we talk about secure transactions, the topic of crypto, you know, and mm. I don't get too far into this world, uh, admittedly, bit of an idiot when it comes to all things crypto. Um, but I can't help but, you know, if I take a little bit of what I've read from others, uh, what's possible, it just seems like Ernest is really well positioned to be a 
service that enables for crypto transactions in real estate because the average title or escrow company is not going to know how to handle this. This is why you still read about when someone buys a house using crypto of some sort because it causes a stink and now it's a big deal and it's you know still it still has some novelty. So is there a future? Is that something that you guys are looking at of like how do we integrate and work with cryptocurrencies and you know holding earnest money and even the cash to close piece allowing someone to come in with sheep coin and and buy a house. It's like is that, <laughs> I didn't want to say it but I, to, I was like I want to use it's so relevant. I have to <laughs> I want to use my bro, my bromado. Uh, <laughs> there you go, and, your uh, bromado. How much can I get for that? That's right. You know, it, it, to your point, our our platform is super well positioned to add on additional payment methods. Actually, for non escrow funds transfers, we're adding the ability to pay with credit cards uh, next week. Um, so you know, it's really easy for us to add on additional payment methods and then allow our users to kind of decide which they're willing to accept and which not. So when that time comes, that it makes sense for us to do that versus our other product roadmap items, uh, it would be very easy for us to add in. I think, you know, just my two cents on that, obviously, in our business model being paid on transactions, like, you know, being mainstream is important here. And, And to be completely honest with you, you know, ACH has been around since 1972. And there's still a lot of misconceptions in the marketplace around how it works and how it can be utilized. Why does it take so many dang days? (laughs) <laughs> well hey man fed now that's gonna that's gonna save us a lot rtp's already doing some of the lord's work on that front but no but so on the crypto side like listen i think in theory it has we've all talked about you know the applicability here in this space for title for payments etc i think until it becomes more mainstream amongst the home buying crowd and how how home buyers want mm-hmm. to buy real estate i think that's where it makes sense for us to bring something like that onto our platform um, I also think, you know, to your point around like appraisals, the thing with appraisals is there's no one in the real estate ecosystem that at least in, in the aggregate that like, will has the data or, or wants to die on the hill that like appraisers and appraisals are the best way as a whole to value a home. Like no, no one that I know of is really trying to argue that. There's Isn't tons it magical though that the appraiser can come back with an appraisal that matches the exact oddball Walmart price that the, you know, was set to begin with? <laughs> That's a whole conversation for another time. But even like Fannie and Freddie, they're not, you know, the, they, the blindfold is not on them about the issues to that exact point. The, something like 98% of appraisals come in between zero and 3% above the, the sales price, right? They, to do an appraisal, you have the sales contract in hand. Again, we we, we don't need to get in all that, but what keeps it, what keeps it in use is there's all of these people who are in the ecosystem, right? There's the originator, the the mortgage originator, there's the GSE like Fannie or Freddie that's actually, you know, sight unseen buying that mortgage as long as it checks these boxes, there's the entire secondary market. And along the way, they've all decided that having that appraisal stapled to that loan, it's currency, it's fiat, right? So it's like, in the same way here, you know, one of the issues early on with ACH that we had to get around was, you know, how that affected, you know, for the for the escrow company, the information they pass off to the lender has to be a certain way. And it's not that and, and, you know, we can't just say, oh, we're going to go talk to every lender in the world and get them used to how we do it. So that's just, again, on the crypto side, which I think for true mainstream applicability, there's just a lot of cooks in the kitchen who all at the same time need to decide we're good with this. Here's how we'll handle it. And I'm not sure we're all the way. I, I don't think we're all the way there yet. Will we get there? It's it's quite possible. But for the time being, yeah. from our perspective versus other kind of priorities, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. Other than if we wanted like the PR from it uh, to start, just I don't think it would get a lot of usage, frankly, currently. Yeah. Yeah. That's the kind of PR. It sounds a lot of fun, but it, boy, does that stuff uh, fizzle really fast. So totally you start weighing the efforts to get that. Well, Speaking of the future, we've got a transition here. We're going to jump right down to For the Future, which is a segment where I get to ask each guest who comes in the show to give their best predictions based on the following four questions. Russell, are you ready to play? I'm ready to play. What's my prize if I win? Is there a prize? Uh, well, the, the, the prize is that a year from now, <laughs> I may be able to go back, take this content, and then hold you to what you predicted. So I love it. Um, Let's go. <laughs> Which the first Shooting from the hip is, here. 
That's all right. Question number one, what does Ernest look like one year from now? Ernest one year from now, I think we've continued to really meaningfully, like we're growing our Ernest money business like crazy right now. So I say our market share on that side is likely doubled. Um, we've made bigger expansion into the largest title markets like California, Texas, and Florida. Um, we've launched a handful more integration partners where we're kind of starting to see more as that, like I said, like Apple pay for earnest money, wherever the transaction is being managed. And I think we, we will have made some much bigger strides into these additional payment occasions, as we like to call them, these use cases, like how, you know, within brokerages, how, how the agent pays their brokerage and how's their, how their brokerage pays them. I think, I think we'll have really started to make much more of a splash in that area and provide, you know, great solutions that are solving problems. That's, that's really where I see it. All right. Question number two, and this one really, this, this is the one I'm going to hold you to. Okay. Will there be more, less, or equal number of transactions in residential real estate this year, 2022, versus last year, 2021? Well, I was just looking at some Redfin data about this yesterday. We're tracking pretty close to last year. Um, like maybe week on week, like usually somewhere anywhere between like 2 and 8% below for like actual homes sold. I'm going to guess like, I mean, with that data in mind, an educated guess, I'm going to say slightly less, but really close. Re- really close is my guess. Yeah. All right. Slightly less, really close. Is this where you hold up the, the jar of a ton of M&Ms and ask me to guess how many are in it? Because I'm, I'm ready for that one. I've been prepping. You should get one. That's question number five. I don't have five. one of those. I don't, I don't think I have any can- – the only thing I have – the only food I have here is uh, uh, I have chicken jerky sticks for my dog when when he comes in from a walk. He somehow is in the, this habit that he came in from a walk, so he should get a treat. So he comes to my office for a treat. All right. How many – I'm going to guess there's 14 jerky sticks in that bag. Uh, you can I'll tell me later. Sit here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Question number three, what's one industry trend you think will continue but you wish would go away? Oh, my gosh. One industry trend. Lack of inventory. Um, I Just in general, can I just throw in the entire market condition we're in of, like, how crazy it is for, for buyers to be able to – I think it's just going to continue for a while that it's really hard to be a first-time home buyer in this market. Um, and that's really unfortunate. And there's just like obviously so many conditions that have affected that. The, the continued growth of institutional investors buying single-family homes, uh, COVID, rate stuff. Like there's all these reasons that this is, you know, lack of lack of new inventory coming on the market. Um, there's all sorts of things that are affecting that. But I, I don't see that stopping uh, right away. And I just really, really wish it would because it's it's unfortunate. We need people to be able to buy homes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, maybe I'm contributing to that problem because I'm in team no sell ever. So. <laughs> well, that's okay as long as, as long as you're also not like a NIMBY or something like that. As long I'm as you're also NIMBY. promoting. I am, I am yes in my backyard. Bring it. You're a NIMBY. Let's yeah. do it. Let's not be dumb about yeah. it. Look, I didn't buy the lot across the street. You know, that's just how it works. So. Less egos, more amigos, my friend. That's, there that's we what go. I have to say. All right, number four, final for the future. What's one thing you believe will dramatically change or fade away in real estate as a result of tech advances? You mentioned appraisals. I don't think they'll go away entirely, but just how appraisals look, I think, will be changed with technology over the next decade. I think overall, um, that we're already seeing that you can get more accurate with far less bias. Um, and much more streamlined, like there's less and less appraisers every year. And that's really the appraisals. Like we said, that's how these things are securitized. Um, it's the oil in the engine that is the American home buying and selling process. And as appraisers continue to go away, the ability to buy and sell home gets more expensive. It slows down and that, and that's a problem. So I think, I think they'll be forced into more digitalization there, even though they should be because it's better. Um, yeah, I think I think that's a main one. I think um, you know, on the agent side, some things we're seeing around like transaction management as a service and things. I think that's tech enabled for sure. It's still kind of a services business, but um, you know, continuing as as the as the cream of the real estate 
agents continues to rise to the top and it's, you know, the 80, 20 of real estate. that so just continues where the best agents are doing the bulk of the deals. They're just going to have to continue to focus in on what differentiates them. And that's not their ability to make sure all of the documents are in the right order. It's their ability to market themselves, market their listings, get the deal done for their customer. And so the more detail side of things, I think will continue to fall to, you know, specialized people on their team or that they hire through a company like, Transact Leader, Close Concierge, or Left Press. Very cool. All right, we're going to move into the last three, the final three questions we have for today. Russell, okay. this is so our listeners get to know you better. First one is, what are you reading? Oh, you know what? Uh, a little embarrassing, but not at all. Um, I am going back through, I loved the Harry Potter books as a kid. And I've on Audible, <laughs> I've been going back through and re-listening to to those i'm on the fifth one right now which is i think order of the phoenix if you know what man it's it's a nice escape i'll mix in some uh some kind of business books here and there i just read a great adam grant book that the name is escaping me right now but you know sometimes that kind of originals no i think he just came out with it um oh oh yeah, yeah. uh like i saw it's it. like a blue and white cover i can't think of it anyway uh the harry potter books it's a great escape reminds me of my youth uh, and it's going to be a number of years before my son is ready to hear the Harry Potter books. So I'm just indulging myself for the time being. Think again. Think again. It's yeah. Great the, book. Uh, the new mm-hmm. Adam Grant book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Great book. Yep. Mm-hmm. How to change people's it's, minds it's without, without kind of, comp- uh, one of my old, one of my old bosses, actually a real scout, Pierre Calzadilla, shout out Pierre. He always talked about sales, like verbal judo, where you don't just try and go like punch for punch with people. It's all about accepting the no. blow and like using their power kind of against them. And I think that's what a lot of think again is about is not trying to just like, well, I think this and, and, and just trying to have an answer for every question. In yes, fact, usually that makes yes. people pull away and getting them to better understand their own positions. It's a really interesting book. Highly recommend it. it sounds very Robert Cialdini uh, or Cialdini. Yeah. I don't know how to say his last yeah. name. Uh, so, that's, yeah. What was that I'm book? That was, a, that. he hit a great book too. The, well, the, it was influences. Influence. The, uh, is, yeah. Is, yeah. The five, the five. Yeah. His work. It's a great book. Yep. Number two, who are you learning from? Oh, man. Uh, honestly, fun, gosh, I wouldn't even thought my, my I've got a 10 month old son. Uh, it's it's really fun to kind of see. It's kind of just like seeing a human being go from being this little pupa to like essentially almost walking. You just see the world in an entirely different way and how we as human beings kind of develop and where we all come from and how we all start. And it's uh it's kind of crazy. It's super meta. It's not like, uh, I'm learning, you know, how to, how to set better, you know, cap rates on, on, uh, apartment deals or anything like that. But like, it's, it's at a very high level. It feels like I'm learning a lot from, from him and, and becoming a father right now. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. Last one here. What inspires you? Oh man. What inspires me? Um, I'm really competitive. I think at my core. So I think whether I'm competing with myself or, or other little kind of things I prop up, um, you know, that obviously, you know, doing what we need to do for our families um, and just for our teams, you know, I feel like that's, I'm just always, even as part of that competitive drive, um, I just want to, I want to win even more for myself. I just, I want, I want to provide great outcomes for the people who are, who are in the trenches with me every day. I think, I think that's, that's really what motivated to do things that, that change the world um, or at least well, some little slice of them and, and just do right by the people who do right by you. I think those are, you know, what keeps you waking up and go, getting after it every day for sure. At least, at least in my book. Yeah. Uh, this has been awesome, man. I really appreciate yeah, the same here. discussion and uh, chance to dig into all these topics. I feel like we could have went down several rabbit holes, but of course we have to spare. Can I ask you one? I, yeah, I, I know Nate, I know you're an investor here. This is bonus content. Um, oh crap. I've got a business idea I want to pitch you on. Uh, we're going to do this right on right now. Let's do it okay. right now. All right. It's like Papa Murphy's, but for like sheet pan nachos, like gourmet sheet pan nachos. Uh, so you come in and it's like, what's your base? Tortilla chip, Fritos, whatever. Okay, pulled pork, whatever. And you walk out with like a ready-to-bake sheet pan nacho. Mm. Uh, and and yeah, it's like Papa Murphy's for sheet pan nachos. I, I don't have a name for it yet, but I am, I hate you know, to putting together a term sheet. You. 
I hate to break it to you. I cannot invest in this idea. And I have a very specific, I have a very strategic reason as to why is because when my wife and I were still dating, she said that we should one day build a nacho buffet. And that sounds very similar to like as a restaurant or in your, in your kitchen. No, like a, as a, as a business, as a place a you business. go to and it's like nachos buffet. So what you're saying is you're my competition here. You're so, going to compete so with me. You're, uh, the Papa Murphy's of the nachos, uh, business better stay out of South Dakota. Well, this was a privileged conversation <laughs> and, uh, and I'm going to, it's patent pending. Patent pending. So, uh, patent pending. Yeah. There's probably a reason uh, no one has done it. Um, you know, the challenge of walkout with nachos, as you know, is that if nachos are a, uh, a see it and eat it food, if it sits, woof, it doesn't. Well, that's uh, why you got to. It's take and bake, man. That's why you got to do it in your own house. Oh, you see? take it home and bake it. Up. That's oh, it's like Papa. Papa isn't Papa Marie's delivery? Pe- it's not a delivery pizza. Is it? No, oh, it's oh, take it's and bake. Those... Oh, okay. Well, then yeah. So that's it's fine. take and bake. She yeah, no, I'm into that. Okay, we can be friends. Okay. All right. Well, into it. you know, we'll we'll see. I'll we'll I'll, uh, I'll I'll see you on the battlefield. Good luck to you. All right. We'll catch you later, and we'll we'll talk about that another time. <laughs> Thanks, Nate. Thanks for having me, man. Well, thanks for listening to the Tech Nest Podcast. You can always get future episodes delivered to you directly by subscribing to the podcast in your favorite app store. You can also join the newsletter. Head over to technest.io or finledger.com slash newsletters to get all future episodes, updates, and more sent to you right into your inbox. Last but not least, we appreciate your support. Please go ahead and give us a rating and review in your app store. This helps others discover the podcast and know that it's a great worthy listen. We'll see you next week.